Hey there, before we get started, just a little disclaimer. The following episode is going to be based on a topic that some people may find a little sensitive. That is black history, faith communities, non-belief, and the way those things all play on each other. With that said, we welcome you. But if you feel like you may want to put this off for another time when you're ready to go down that rabbit hole, let's go. On this episode, part two of our conversation series with my co-host, the insightful, sensitive, and cool brother that is Verdell Wright and myself. We're continuing an ongoing dialogue stemming from episodes six and 10, just in case you missed it. Today, we're deconstructing and just having plain old conversations. This and more on where we're headed. Free thoughts, stories, gender, politics, Blackness, education, doubt, critique, science, achievement, engineering, Africa, America, and more on Welcome back. We're going further into the type of conversations that we had a couple episodes ago with my friend and co-host Verdell Wright. He's a former Christian minister and myself, former Christian minister of music. And together, we are dissecting some of the many dynamics of black Christianity that frankly need critiquing and maybe discarding, particularly if you're trying to understand better where non-believers and people who don't subscribe to faith are coming from. Let's catch up on our ongoing discussion here. past the 9-11th, 25th, uh, or 20th anniversary a couple of weekends ago. And um, the 9-11th anniversary, among so many other things, I think the January 6th uh, insurrection, certainly the George Floyd uh, moments and the other social justice and moment, uh, social injustice moments that we've had in the last couple of years, as well as the pandemic that we're all living through have really brought to the fore this idea of what real Christianity is, what real Islam is, what real anything is in terms of the popular conversation or imagination around around authentic Christianity. Is authentic Christianity being practiced by person X or group X or, um, or sect X? Um, and I remember... When I was starting to transition out of religion and out of my faith, I remember being on a flight to L.A. one time with this woman, and I don't know what started it. I'm not really that much of a talker on planes, but there was a conversation some kind of way, probably from a book that I was reading, sitting next to someone, and this lady saw the book that I was reading and asked questions. It was something about religion. I think it was probably a Bart Ehrman book because those were the years where I was studying biblical criticism and, you know, sort of textual criticism and stuff. And so I was probably reading, I think, that book, probably misquoting Jesus or something like that. And um, the lady saw it and asked me. And so, I, you know, I tried to kindly tell her what I was reading. And it just developed into her, in some ways, talking about Christianity from a place of kind of defensiveness, but also understanding. And at the end of it, I just kind of felt really weird about what she was trying to to say or communicate because she was basically saying, oh, those people aren't real Christians, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, 
whatever I was reading, misquoting Jesus, I'm sure you probably know those types of books. They're they're textual criticism uh, uh, of the the New Testament and and the Old, but this particular one was of the New Testament, and and it essentially criticizes the way people um, have been taught to read scripture and to interpret from scripture certain things and to just assume stuff. And it essentially implicates pastors and churches and just the whole project of specifically Christianity in a way that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And so sometimes the response is, oh, it may be true that such and such and such and such, but people don't mean to do it like that. And and the folks who do interpret interpret it that way, they're not real Christians and stuff like that. And we saw that with 9-11. You know, um, George Bush was famous for for appropriately trying to to defuse uh, the situation of, of bigotry and, and uh, stereotyping. But I think in some ways he went a little far, too, in trying to make it seem like you Those know, just bad must. Those are the bad Muslims. We're the bad Muslims. We like the good ones. Right. Uh, and Obama did it as well. You know, Islam is a religion of peace. And, you know, and yeah, uh, there's that there's <laughs> that thing, you know, That's so funny. This, and everybody's doing it. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, you, you're a, a white lady that's, you know, nice church lady, or if you're the president, you know, and you're from the the South and the Bible Belt, or if you're a, a flaming liberal from Chicago and Hawaii. That's not the God that I know. My God yeah. is like that. I mean, I see all of that, but my God doesn't do that type of thing. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, or or I should say in front of the scenes, if you look at what's happening and what people are doing and who's being affected by Christianity as an institution, it, it contradicts that, you know? Yeah. Um, it's to put on my nerd hat. It's a, it's a axiological fallacy. Um, it's Tell a us about that. Um, yes. Yeah. And so it's like this idea that them over there, they aren't real. We're the real ones. And I think the issue with that is you can say you're whatever you want to be and you're already that when it comes to religion, um, particularly when it comes to faiths like Christianity and Islam. Even if you if you read the, you know, the Bible closely, people were practicing differently even during that time in the Hebrew scriptures. You know, the people in Samaria were practicing differently than the people further up. And, you know, Judah and Israel separated because they had issues about this, that, and the third. And Jesus did this. And then the Peter wanted to do that. And Paul wanted to do this. And so it's it's actually, there was always, like, I like what my teacher said, it, it's always the history, history of Christianities, plural. And all of them are valid, even the ones you don't like, um, because there is no grand and this hurts a lot of progressive people's feelings too particularly when i say this it's like you're interpreting as well like you're making i understand why you come to this conclusion and it makes sense but it is still an interpretation yes maybe a healthier one a more holistic one but it's still an interpretation and yeah, we can talk about what it means and 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 that type of thing and 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 the context and all of that. Yeah, all of that type of stuff is true, but for everyone's belief, they don't integrate that. And even you know, everybody picks and chooses, and so it's it's too hard to do that. It's it's one thing to acknowledge, like, look, we know that all Christians, we know that all Muslims don't think this way, don't believe this way. 
saying that is different than saying, oh, well, these aren't real Christians because this is what they do. And I mean, of course, the conservative folks do it, but progressive folks do it too. It's like, well, that's not real Christianity. You know, real Christianity, you can come to church and, and get gay married and whatever. And it's like, well, you're interpreting that. Again, like, sure, fine. But there is no grand interpreter council that you can apply and get something. This is what this officially means. That's why there's so many denominations. It's like, we read this differently. We want to, we want to baptize. I don't want to baptize. We baptize babies. We don't. We want bishops. We want congregational rule. Like it's everybody is like, oh, well, we read something differently and we're going to go off and do our thing differently. And we're going to do this until somebody there says, I want to do something differently. And then they move and invite and then on and on and on and on and on. Yeah, it's I get what people are trying to do. I don't think it's ultimately helpful because it kicks the can down the road about institution. Hey, this is Ronnell Adams from Washington, D.C., author of Aiken and Praying, and you are listening to Where We're Headed. If you like what you're hearing or you're curious about these and other subjects, visit our Legacy Video Program Archive. It's online on our Black Nonbelievers YouTube channel. You can look it up at Black Nonbelievers Inc., all one word, directly. You can find every Legacy video from Season 1 and Season 2 there. Plus much, much more. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Check this out. Okay, no lie. The Puritan one with Paula. Child, this is good. I'm not done yet. Baby, this is fire. I need you to know right here, right today, testifying at my desk, baby. My hands are on the desk. Fist is raised. I'm telling you, y'all got me fired up. Like, your podcast is, is like giving me so much life. You know, I consider myself like listening to what you're saying. I I can relate to humanism and free thinking and yeah. That was friend to the show, Ananda. Thank you for your genuine message. I promise y'all I didn't have anything to do with that. And if you want to leave feedback, you can go to www.podbean.com or on whatever platform you're listening to this on. That's www.podbean.com or just look for the link in the show notes. See you online. This takes me to where I want to go next, because it sounds like what they're engaged in is a kind of a cultural myth making in a way, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. uh, and they're engaged in that as a practice, as a sort of a lived experience that this is how we how we tell stories that it's woven through truth, but also it is it is accompanied by, you know, various uh, narratives and, and license that's taken to sort of create meaning around stories that are true. And, and that's what's happening. And it's these types of insights that for me were exactly what I was talking about early on. This was the kind of thing that I was reading 
when that woman was next to me sitting in the in the plane noticing that I was in you know and I tried to be vague and then she just seemed to really be interested and so I was essentially kind of saying what you're saying like uh without trying to offend but just to say that you know I'm learning about how better to to analyze and to interpret and and essentially understand these stories that we were never told uh we were never taught how to read these stories and understand them. We were never taught to think critically about the seven last words of Christ, that, that he could not have said these things four or five different ways. That at some point, that it had to be one way or no way that we can rely on that he said them. And all of that stuff is just completely new. And essentially, her response being essentially, those are not real Christians if they believe that, is a way of escaping or avoiding or denying accountability for the things that are preached in connection to those types of scriptures and so forth. I mean, people have been sent to hell, so to speak, based on whether or not they believe in in those literal retellings of those stories. People have been condemned. People have been ostracized. People have been shamed and, and, and people have despaired over whether or not they were doing things the right way based on literal interpretations of those scriptures. And to deny that and to say they're not real Christians is a way is a way of escaping accountability. And and I I'm interested in accountability, like uh among so many other things. You know, I'm interested in the the textual criticism, but I'm also interested in the overall accountability personally, but also institutionally of these of the effect of all of this kind of teaching. I mean the thing about it is and this probably isn't the answer that is the most satisfying. But most of them don't know. That's why. Um, Like they have no clue. And it's so far away from their frame of reference about how to approach the world that it's a shock to the system. And I'm talking about like on an individual level, you know, and even a, even a, a community level, you know, not getting into, I mean, not getting into the accountability pieces um, just yet is that I know this because I went to school and I didn't even know what type of school I was getting into when I went. I read, I was a better reader than many of the people that were there and already, but I was believing some of the same things. I would read more closely and be like, well, wait a minute, it says this and context clues, so I would do that. But the Bible itself is not actually an easy book to read because they're not writing to you. They're talking to somebody in their own time and space and that's not any of us. And so there's things that you would never know what they were unless someone broke it down to you and like you had to learn what it was. It's like if somebody from the 50s were somehow got a hold of one of our emails and we're like, did you see that thing on Twitter? You know, I saw it on my on on my um, on my cell phone, but I didn't get reception. They wouldn't know what the hell that is. Like, hey, I'm going to see the Uber. I'm, you know, I'm going to catch an Uber. I'll be over there. What is an Uber? Are you all Germans? What's going on? And so they wouldn't know. And so that's really what the Bible is. And a lot of ancient scriptures, it's like, it's not written to us. So you can read as sincere, even, you can even read very sincerely all sorts of things that you would never know. Like, for example, in Ruth um, and Naomi, and then she is like, oh, well, you know, Boaz, Boaz was old, really old. Uh, Ruth uncovers his feet. And well, that's a euphemism that was commonly used in ancient in the ancient Near East for like oral sex. But if you're just reading your old Bible, it's okay, he she uncovered his feet. Oh, is that like when when um, Mary wiped Jesus' feet with her tears? Is that is it the same? 
And, and even though that's a logical leap, if you're reading in here and things and trying to put it all together, and if you think it's all one cohesive story, that makes sense to think, but she would never know that unless you studied and went to school and someone at a school that would actually teach you that and see that and see it in other documents. You would, you would never know. And so a lot of it is just cycles of not knowing. Now, I will say, I know a lot of people that I went to school with, you wouldn't know they went. Um, I do think that institutionally, that type of stuff is encouraged because you go to school to learn, but then you have to get ordained, which means you have to kind of put some of that stuff away, at least enough to get credentialed, right? A number of my classmates, if you would hear them, it's like you would know that we were in the same class together, had the same teacher, you would never know. And so on that case, people who know, you know, who have similar education to mine, who still maintain those types of things. Like I know plenty of people who, yeah, still believers, but handle this in a much more careful, honest way, right? But so many people just put that away. They just don't do it because they're like, oh, well, the people, they aren't ready. They can't handle it. They don't need all of that. And sometimes that makes sense. Like if they don't eat it in the moment, but oftentimes it's like, well, you're the shepherd. You're supposed to make them ready and lead them there, right? I'm reminded of that uh, scripture. I, I want to say it's in James, but I'm not sure. Um, it's a scripture that says always be accountable for um, the hope that you have. Uh, in maybe it's not. I think it's something. I think that's James. That sounds like James. Yeah. To always be prepared to give an account, I think is what it is. Always be prepared to give an account for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. And it's interesting. Um, I've run into some of those seminarians in my in my own time. A few years ago, there was a woman who was in seminary, I think maybe in her second year. And she um, came to the church that I was playing at and delivered a sermon where she was clearly struggling. And I wrote some notes down because I didn't want to forget the things that she was claiming and she was claiming that her professors and some of the students she was with were engaged in some sort of uh secret plot to um to sort of deconvert her or to prevent her from really achieving the the height or the maximal faith level you know, that she was trying to go for. And she resented them in a way because they made her uncomfortable with the things that she had gone to seminary to to accomplish and to learn. And so to your point, she went to seminary as an extension of her faith to mm -hmm. strengthen her faith so that she could basically go on the conveyor belt, you know, and get spit out the other side as a preacher and go back to the home church or the community and, and be the celebrated preacher, you know, and, and I don't want to trivialize it. I think she wanted to serve, but the point is she saw her education of all of the things that you're talking about as an assault. Mm -hmm. There was a time I used to, I think I said this on the last episode, there was a, a friend that I used to do like a seminar for, for his world religions class. Mm -hmm. And I think it was like the second or third time I did it for him. And after the class, several of them approached him and, and like they, they were like about to file a complaint because they were very upset um, at what I was saying. They thought it was disrespectful to the faith. They thought that I was intentionally trying to turn people away. And one, just, just the obliviousness to think that this is something that a university would deal with in a world religions class, 
that in and of itself is hilarious. But like, it's funny, but it's also very troubling. Um, because I, I know I always make it clear. It's like, listen, some things I do hope you change your mind about. I'm going to be flat out because it's not whether about scripture, it's about treating people well and humanely and not just people who you understand or agree with that you should not stand in the way of another human being having the full ability to flourish. If you do that, I'm completely against you. And I will tell you when we get to those points. So I just want to be clear. That's where I am with it. But you understand that with that being said, this is still, we're talking about this in the academic space. This is not Bible study. We'll be right back with more conversation from myself and Burdale Wright. What's going on? It's Kevon Cameron from Black Nonbelievers New York City, and you're tuned into the Where We're Headed podcast. Guess what? We've got mail. Or should I say, Where We're Headed has got mail. In addition to the show website, which is at www.podbean.com, where you can find all relevant information from past episodes, links, resources, and so much more. We've got a new email address where you can reach out and you can send comments, you can send suggestions, and you can also send voice notes with your own personal touch. Send us your feedback, give us a compliment, or give us a suggestion. You can reach us at bndcpodcast at gmail.com. That's bndcpodcast at gmail.com. And once again, our show website is www.podbean.com Okay, Nola, the Puritan one with Paula. Ciao! This is fire! I'm telling you, y'all got me fired up. I, I can relate. that it's like whoever you talk to in your closet when you prayed this morning all right whatever but the church capital c institution is a thing and those have material effects that you cannot deny no matter how many rainbows and trees your jesus hugs which personally i'm not a i I have interesting views on 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 jesus that gets both sides of of the aisle a little upset but that's because i like actually like i really studied um, and so I see things. Give, give, give us a little taste of, of some of those interesting views. Well, one is that Jesus never referred to himself as God. That was something that was later. Um, as a what, but what about the the Gospel of John? I mean, it says you know, like you know, I am the the such as such as such as such before you know uh, before Abraham I was, and you know, it, he it's all these declarative yeah. things. Tell us, why, why is that a problem? Because he well, said it, I am God, all by myself. Well, one thing my theology told me is that the Bible does not say anything. You have to read it. I mean, it doesn't talk at all. Um, and that may sound silly, but it's like, you got to stop thinking like, no, the Bible didn't say anything. You read this and took this away from it. It's like throwing the, like, take responsibility, um, good or bad, right? So in order to make it make sense, I have to like, do a quick gospel primer. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. Why? Because they basically, there's a theory that is widely accepted that these three documents came together by drawing from a common source of like sayings and stories called Q. And so we, no one's ever found Q. No one knows what it might say or, or whatever. Like we have some ideas what this theoretical document could hold given things that are similar and things that are tweaked and things like that, but we've never actually found a cue, just like we've never found any original copies of any of the gospels. Even the names themselves, they were just attributed as tradition to these folks. But there are differences, so different things are emphasized, like Mark is really short to the point, everything is immediate, bam, and now, and suddenly, and then, and you know, that was how that was. Matthew is clearly written to more, you know, a Jewish audience. Um, even the Greek, like the, the Greek in Mark is real rough, just real colloquial street Greek. In Matthew, it's a little different. Um, you can tell they're trying to, con you know, connect him to Jewish prophets. Luke, again, it was part of Luke. Acts was like one thing written to kind of convince, you know, dignitaries, people in power that, you know, Christians aren't to be feared or whatever. So hmm? I was about, I was just about to continue your uh, your sequence. I was about to say, and then John. <laughs> oh yeah, and so I say all that to say, now we can get to John. John. Let's see a comparison. If the synoptic gospels are like um, vanilla ice cream, then John is raspberry cotton candy ice cream with M&Ms, Skittles, and lollipop sticking out of it. I know that sounds wild. With a candy dipped <laughs> cone. Yeah, that, that, that's what that's what John is. and. And yes, there are some things that are taken that you can still see the connection, but it, it, every gospel, even, even the Sabbath ones, are trying to demonstrate a point. And the point is of John is to say, Jesus was the word. Like they, take, they took like a concept that was in the ancient Greek world, the logos, which is the, like, the logos is not some unique Christian thing. It's like- and These are things, these are- yeah, these are ideas that are coming out of what Plato and different yeah, Hellenistic like they, sources. They talk about the logos things before, so they're like, right. oh well, no, Jesus is the logos, not just a word, but the operating principle of reality, if you will. And so they're really trying to prove that Jesus is that mystical. So Jesus is basically like Obi Wan Kenobi the whole entire time. He's going disappearing through doors, doing all types of stuff. And so that's why John seems so weird um, be, com in comparison. One of the reasons why people say that Jesus was ministering for three years is because in John, he goes to the temple three times. All the other gospels only have him going to the temple once. And so more than likely, Jesus probably didn't minister three years. It probably was around one or so. Or at the very least, that one year was the one where it mattered the most, you can say. But even one of people's favorite passages from John about the... Um, the woman caught in adultery or whatever, it actually isn't in any of the oldest documents of John. Right. In there at all. Um, and, so. and and if it, and what you're saying essentially, and what, what Brother Burdell is, is alluding to is that the way we take for granted these different books of the, the New Testament to essentially be one long run-on sentence is a really incorrect way to to understand what's being said through the writings. Um, and and it, it reminds me when I was playing for church, uh, you know, Easter weekend is sort of like the Super Bowl of, you know, 
Christian experience in, in a way. It's it's showtime. And I, and I don't mean to to make light of that as a joke. I, I'm saying that from the point of view as a musician. Yeah, as a mu- it's showtime. It's showtime. Yeah, that, that's the day. This is this is the day because we've got the concerts, we've got this, we got the, the, the choirs got to have the best song, you know, so it, it's a lot of performance and preparation. And I I remember um, there is the the seven last words of Christ. Oh, I Con- preached a few of those. Oh yes. You know what I mean? Like the whole <laughs> the whole uh, event on Friday uh, night is to essentially showcase, it, at least in this particular uh, Baptist church and, and fellowship that I was a part of, to showcase and to fellowship with other churches in in the Baptist in that community, and to have you know different preachers four to five or six or seven come up and preach essentially the quote last words of Christ, you know, as a sort of a, a build up to this this climactic moment of crucifixion. And it's it's a religious experience, you know, in a way it's to sort of, you know, dramatize these moments and to to read off all of these passion stories in a way that if you're not paying attention and and most of us were not paying attention or not taught to pay attention, you think that Jesus said all of those things, you know, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they do, you know, why have thou forsaken me, and all all of these things that essentially, if you look at them objectively, it's like, these these are different words. It's like if I had my last words and I was on an electric chair or whatever, and and I said bobbity-boo or whatever, and someone wrote it down, and then that person wrote it down to somebody else, and, and some kind of way it ends up getting to the point where I said bobbity boo, beep beep bop, be you know, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. I actually didn't say that. I said bobbity boo, but y'all are reading it out as if I said all of these different things. And the seven last words of Christ, I mean, when at some point I thought to myself, he he couldn't have said all of those things. Cause he that's- probably didn't say much of it, honestly. Yeah. I think if you look at how crucifixion works, not to trigger warning <laughs> coming up, he wouldn't have been able to breathe. And um, it's, uh, I know it says that, you know, there was someone who was someone who was right, but Jesus, it was probably crucified with lots of people that day. It just happened to be, and, and the thing is the disciples scattered. So who was writing this down? And again, he was often people were killed and then crucified. And so if you like think about Jerusalem and you're going up to the hill to go into the city and what you would see is a grotesque display of bodies crucified, hanging there, being picked off by birds, dogs, animals. And you would see the, the list, the, the, their sin written over them. And so basically the point is to terrify you before you get into the city um, to say, okay, this is what this person did. Look at them, this is what that person did. So the fact that Jesus was crucified alive is something else because usually they kill you and then do it. Um, but how he wouldn't have said this, and the fact that also he died so quickly, um, people, if they were alive, you would it would take, you know, days. You could, you could be up there for a very long time. You don't just like in six hours, you know, six hours, yes, is a long time. Like, maybe six hours, however long it was. It mm-hmm. wasn't like it was only a minute, but it could take scientifically that it, that would take a long time. Like you yeah. literally are, I mean, sure, you're in shock. You have nails through your hands and whatever. But what truly, you know, it, as as awful as that is, like, you know, you get infectious stuff like that. But getting the nail through your hand and your feet, that's not going to kill you. It'll probably send you in the shock, mm-hmm. but it's not going to kill you. It's you, you, you suffocate because the energy it takes to breathe 
you can't do it. And so you keep trying to inhale air and eventually you get tired and you can't do it. And so how is this person talking? Well, he's got <laughs> Like, how is this person saying this? He's and, but, but Um, we lost the persecution tracker with the aim to compile and catalog as many of these incidents as possible. Um, incidents of vigilante violence, of state persecution, um, motivated by blasphemy and apostasy accusations. We want to highlight the liberal brutality and human rights violations in the Islamic world and make clear their connection with religious extremism. Both in the West and, and in the Islamic world, these cases get very scant attention. Very few people are aware of these abuses. Um, especially on the scale that it actually occurs. That's a screenshot of the cases in Pakistan. Dozens upon dozens of cases, these are the ones that we've documented. We're uh, aiming to create a central comprehensive resource about these incidents and as well as the relevant laws uh, to spread awareness of these injustices. We want to humanize the victims of persecution. So their stories and sufferings are not just detached headlines and statistics. Mm. We highlight incidents involving atheists, secularists, liberals, religious minorities, and even Muslims, including persecuted minority sites like Ahmadis in Pakistan. You see pictures of Yamin Rashid, uh, a Maldivian blogger and satirist who was stabbed to death in his own apartment building. He was 29 at the time of his death. Kareem Amir was an Egyptian student. He was expelled from his college when his apostasy became public. He was in prison. He was tortured for criticizing Islam. The one on the right is Farfunda Mirza in Afghanistan. She was falsely accused of burning a Quran. No such incident had occurred. She was brutally beaten to death in the streets, run over, and then her body was set alight. Many tracker, many victims that we've cataloged are still alive, have managed to flee uh, to other countries around the world. One of the things that we plan to do in the near future is to reach out to them, uh, document their testimony uh, to inspire others. The tracker has a map view where you can see all the countries we profile, all the Islamic countries, the incidents we uh, catalog within those countries, as well as the specific laws within those countries, which countries have that penalty, for example. We also have details about specific cases, specific individuals, what they went through, what laws they were accused of violating when they were jailed or killed. We also document what's, what the laws are in specific countries, country profiles. Um, and one of our aims is to show the history of these laws as well. Often um, in Western discourse, um, people focus on Western influence on the East rather than what has actually happened throughout history. These laws are as old as Islam itself. Um, when the Mughal Empire existed in the 16th century, they were killing people for apostasy. When the British came into power, they re-implemented those same laws that continued that tradition. When Pakistan and India became independent entities, they continued that tradition. It's not something that started recently, it's been going on for thousand plus years. We're hoping to have a single point of reference for all secular groups and other allies around uh, to be able to reference, to reference this case for their lobbying efforts. AJ did a wonderful job with uh, the basking resolution that was passed, um, having this resource available to everybody where they can look up what has happened recently and in the past in a specific country they're lobbying about uh, would be extremely helpful. We're asking everybody here, if they have any other cases that they're aware of, to let us know so we, our researchers can research them, add them to the tracker, and 
have them available for everybody. Uh, as we move forward, we've already documented about 400 cases. Um, we plan to release annual reports with details of what has been going on around the world. So as you can see, there's a map view over here. You can scroll around various countries, click on the country, it'll give you details about the country, specific cases, and zoom in and out to various parts of the world. Give you details of the individuals involved. So there's a lot of, it's easily accessible. Uh, you can search through the cases, look up individual cases, sort through them. We have a country-based view where you can look up all the cases per country. Um, we're hoping this will be a comprehensive resource available to all the secular community and others outside of our community as well. This is that revival. I remember <laughs> in Hebrew Bible too, they, we were talking about Song of Songs. Most people know that Song of Solomon, right? And so we were really getting into it, um, really, you know, getting into what it is. Most people in church would be like, oh yeah, this is about Jesus and his love for the church. And it's like, no, these two people, these two unmarried people are having very intimate, very explicit sex all over the place. And she's very dark hued, if not black. Um, and so it's this black woman who is talking about her enjoyment and vice versa of this man physically. And that's really what it is. The lily in the valley, open the gardens and the waters and all the other stuff. It, is it, that the one where the sweet Rose of Sharon is in there too? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's sweet. sweet. Flowers and, 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 pluck, and plucking roses and lilies and yes. gardens flourishing. And all of the things. They'll come into my garden. Yes. You know, as the... As the the waters flow and all that. The, but that flowing was flowing waters. Yeah, that's how people in the ancient Near East wrote erotic poetry. And so they were just following in that tradition. Um, there's not even any indication that Solomon had anything to do with it, honestly. But again, again, if you're reading all that, you don't know. You know, it's not necessarily abundantly clear, particularly if you, I think it's a cultural thing too. Perhaps if you did not come up in that environment, you can read that and say, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> this language seems kind of suggestive, but if you did not grow up in that and, you know, people, I think this is also a byproduct of the fact the way scripture is organized and like book and, and chapter and verse, people read it in segments, not as a whole. And so they can quote a piece of scripture and they don't know what comes before it or after it. It's just that one. It's like, it's like reaching for a medicine cabinet. I want some of this. I want some of that. I need some of this. Give me some of that a la carte type of thing. And it's all a buffet. Everything is the contextual. Like, give me some of this and some of that, whatever. You can, make any, you can make any plate you want. It can be as ridiculous as you want. Um, nothing, nothing has to really go together, but as long as you like to eat it. <laughs> and that's kind of how it is. Yeah, I, I told someone uh, years ago that was trying to make a point to me. And I said, I said, well, you know, you may be right. I was like, but the Bible, you can find anything you want to find in there. And you're going to find some, some scripture or some series of words that will agree and, and correspond to whatever it is that you, that you wanted to say or want a point that you want to make. And I might've been exaggerating, but only, only just a little bit. I mean, there's, if you make the point of picking things out for your buffet, you'll have a full plate by the time you get ready to go sit down.
I also wanted to just ask you on on the subject of this seminary experience where where they were trying to file a complaint against you. But I also want to ask, you know, just circling back to accountability again, I'm interested in the sense of accountability on that individual level, which is also influenced by the institution, but just on an individual level. What does it mean to learn all of these things to to essentially go through the process of having that insight and and being educated on how better to read and be, and just better be better informed about all of these these realities and the way that's juxtaposed to how these things are preached mm-hmm. uh, as if they are unitary sort of pronouncements as if they all cohere with one another as if they are all as if we can just infer that the context is in favor or in line with what people try to take out of it like just like you started on talking about John you know I am the word you know in the beginning was the word and so forth we're taught that that is what Jesus actually said we're taught that all of those things mean exactly what they say and to go someplace and learn that that that's not the case or at least not necessarily the case and to be in all of that and then come out and just go back to your church and and basically tell folks the opposite of what you learned I'm interested in just like what does that mean? Like, why aren't people more accountable for for what they've learned and and sharing that? If the, you know, if that's what you you learn, why won't you share that with other people? Well, I think the story that I was sharing actually leads into that point. Um, there was actually two separate stories. Um, the one about um, when I was going into like Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, we were in Hebrew Bible two, and we were getting into it um, and talking about it. And there was just one student in the class. I'll never forget it because I laughed so hard. I was wild then. Um, and so we were getting into it and it was this, I don't even know how old she was. Like she, you know, she was a woman, no makeup, hair slicked back, dressed like nothing but God. God was her garment and her and her makeup and her foundation. Holiness. That, that, that was it. And she was hearing it. She was visibly getting disturbed and challenging everything. And to the point where she just kind of like lost it and ran out of the classroom. And the professor had to go to make sure that she was okay. And I was just kind of like, like, what? You, you, you were entertained. <laughs> I was dying because I, I mean, I was cracking up. You were like, look at her. She is having a whole moment. I enjoyed watching people lose their entire shit over <laughs> I mean, to, and to be fair, like I didn't, like I think I said before, like my experience from seminary isn't what got me to leave the faith because while I was deeply entrenched in church, I was not indoctrinated. And so I just thought, hey, I want to be a preacher, so let me go to preacher school. And I was very open and I did not understand quite yet that the churches that I was going to and what I was learning in school did not match. I learned eventually, it came on very strong, but I also liked what I was learning in school and found it way more engaging and interesting than what I was learning in church. We'll be right back after this break. Are you currently on a faith journey of your own? Are you questioning, seeking to find community in a way that's outside of traditional religious institutions or reimagining yourself in relationship to your community and your surroundings as a formerly religious person? You're not as alone as you think you are. There are communities and people and organizations that exist to help people like you in your own journey along the way of life, in your questions, 
in humanism, free thought, in social justice, education, LGBTQ advocacy, scholarships, and more. You are absolutely not the only one. There are others like you, and we're organized, we're engaged, we're active, we're protesting, communicating, and we're trying to live healthy lives as best and ethically as we possibly can, and to have a little fun along the way. Learn more about some of these organizations, like the ones that have produced this podcast, Where We're Headed. You can find out more at AmericanHumanist.org and BlackNonBelievers.org. That's the American Humanist Association at AmericanHumanist.org. And on Facebook, search us at Black Nonbelievers of DC and Black Nonbelievers at BlackNonBelievers.org. Find us online, support today, check us out. If you're just joining us, Burdell Wright and myself have been in a discussion on the intense and subtle dynamics of faith and culture and practice, particularly in regards to the black church and just black people in church, wherever they may be. These types of conversations actually have a name. They're called deconstruction. And it's a process many people who were formerly in a faith have to essentially go through on their way out and continue even once they're out of that faith tradition. Here's more from our convo as we segue into what it means to be accountable as individuals and within institutions of faith. In terms of accountability, when we're talking about the individual person and this accountability on learning that, it's a, it's hard. Um, I think particularly depending on the people that we're talking about. Like, for example, I went to Howard and a lot of people, at least at that time, it was a lot of folks who were all kind of around the same ages, younger, you know, type of thing, you know, mid-20s or so. And for so many of us, that's the first time we were hearing things about sex, sexuality, what you can do and connecting it to our own realities and lives. And people went buck wild. Because again, if you never have a chance to know what life is about and how to conduct yourself, you're doing things when you're 24 that most people did when they were 18 because you were living for God, you know? So wait a minute. So when you say people went buck wild, you're saying that people themselves were living buck wild in terms of sex and sexuality and experiences or or you're talking about? Okay. Yeah. Because again, like you have this newfound freedom, but you have no way of understanding how to navigate it. Right. And I think that was an issue. I think also that was something that I think on the seminary end that was probably need to be addressed a bit more because it's like all of a sudden you understand that there's this freedom that you have, but there's no one really around to tell you or to show you or to have a conversation with on how to navigate that freedom. Um, and so you just bump your head a lot and bump your head against a bunch of other people too. Um, and so that just happens on, on and on. And let me all the stories. I personally was not involved with them because I was a nerd and studying really hard and I didn't live on campus so <laughs> I was not around that, but I heard the stories I was like oh wow yeah that but, was me too I, I was a nerd the entirety of my college experiences and that I, I was serious about studying and I was when class was over and you know I might be somewhere laughing and talking with friends but you know after the laughing and talking was over I actually did go home and yeah. studied and whatever like I didn't realize other people weren't going home yeah I mean it, <laughs> if you know what I mean but I think that one one, it's a shock because what what I've come to learn and realize is that for so many people, 
this is how how they this is the framework that they use to understand themselves and the world around them. And when you not only challenge that, but then also don't have the skills to find and erect a new one, you have two options. You either completely, you're just either completely unmoored, which happens, or you fight to the death to protect what you know, because that's all you know. Like I know plenty of people. Which is why to me, because I did not grow up in church that way and I did not have the chances to explore my sexuality in the midst of being church, like a lot, I would say, particularly a lot of queer uh, Black men do, that I did not rehearse having this bifurcated life in a way that a lot of them had to. And I don't say that to like shame anybody because it's the church's fault that they had to do that, right? So it's not to shame them for having to hide, but they have, what I've realized um, and what I've observed is that they've become comfortable with, you know, we are going to Freak a Leak on Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday morning, though, it is holiness. And we're going to preach the house down. We're going to shout. And cry. The church. Yep, yep, and cry. Okay. And we're going to do, we're going to have church. And then, we, and then after, we're going to go Freak a Leak again. <laughs> because we have all this pent up, whatever, to release. And then Monday starts again. And so it's just hard to expect someone to handle it well when there's no reference point for it. Because usually when you're in those situations, you're not being told about the actual world. No one's really telling you things about your body, your mind, your emotions, other people. Like if everything is filtered through the Lord. And it's not necessarily that it's like, yes, the effects are bad. But I think it's important to see how the, these are cycles of things that keep happening that at some point someone needs to break. And so it doesn't mean that people aren't shouldn't be held accountable, but it's like this is what they know. They don't this is what they know. And that's what they share. They're only sharing what they have. And then when somebody else comes along and or they learn something else, it's like, well, you're saying that what I have isn't enough. You know what I mean? Because it's rooted in being right. And then you're sort of like, well, it's just my own personal experience and, and what God tells me. That's also a dodge because it's like, well, if God is for everybody, how come you know it and nobody else don't? That's so true. I mean, uh, I have I have very similar experiences. I'll, I'll just say a little bit about myself. Growing up, I grew up Moravian. Um, a lot of people don't know what that is. Um, <laughs> I, I spend or too much time explaining to people that Moravian is a Christian denomination, <laughs> even if you don't know it. Um, but essentially, it is not what is considered a black denomination. So right. I didn't grow up in a black church, quote unquote, but there's a caveat for that because me being from the Virgin Islands, there's a lot of Moravian churches in the Virgin Islands. They did a lot of missionary work there um, in the mid to late 1800s, I should say, coming out of uh, Danish slavery and then also in Jamaica as well. And for me, when I came here and heard people talk about the black church and they would say, oh, that's not a black church. Um, it was weird for me to hear that because I'm just like, well, I, it, it was a black church, you know, and when I was in the islands, it was black. I mean, it just it's not a black American church, but it's a black church. All that to say, it would it would show up later in, in a lot of ways because there would be an othering, I guess, that I would experience from black people mm -hmm. because I didn't grow up in an actual black church that was, you know, shouting and carrying on and running around the church and dunking people in, in the baptismal tub and all that. 
And it was weird because people would condescend mm -hmm. because they didn't think that I was actually saved. I remember someone asking me one time when I was like 18, they were like, you know, I was explaining this. I was saying I, I was raised in Arabian. I've gone to a Arabian church all my life. They would say, well, are you saved? I'm like, what did I didn't, I didn't know what that meant for two reasons, because we don't use that word. I never grew up hearing a, any words like saved. You, you, you might hear salvation, but that's sort of like a broader term of like Christ offers salvation, but it wasn't about actually like you being saved and using that word, even though it's related, it just wasn't presented that way as this personal revelatory moment. I was confirmed, much like people in Catholic churches and stuff like that, you get confirmed. So you get to a certain age and you go through your confirmation classes, but you don't, you're not saved. There's no moment in the Donnie McClurkin, you know, we fall down video where you raise up from the pew and walk up front, you know, with tears and stuff. And, you know, <laughs> that moment doesn't happen. There's a, a, a different moment. So I was from a very early age, well, maybe not too early, but I was made to feel that I wasn't sufficiently Christian, that I wasn't saved. And, and from there, among so many other reasons, I was, uh, that was another reason for being othered. But long story short, in the college years, I experienced that again. There was a whole bunch of, um, and I didn't go to a predominantly black college. I went to PWI. Um, so we all knew each other as black people. And there were, you know, folks who coalesced into a church group, the, the Christian, ultra Christian folks. And there was a lot of them because we were in music school. So there's a lot of people who grew up singing and carrying on and playing in church and so forth. And they looked at me as if I wasn't saved as well. And I didn't, you know, join the choirs that they had and stuff like that. And there were a few years where these controversies would erupt because the person leading the choir was found to have been sleeping with this girl, that girl, that girl, this girl got pregnant. She, you know, didn't have a baby and all this kind of stuff. And I started to just realize that, like you said, people were just really, really just, um, Buck wild is the word you use. And it's okay in a way because you're young, you're, you're horny, you've got hormones and all that kind of stuff, and you look good. You probably look the best you're ever going to look in your life. And, you know, this is a great time to have great sex, you know. But it was like you said, it was unmoored. It was sort of bumping their heads, you know. Uh, but, you know, just sort of like making a lot of mistakes because they had lived in these very binary worlds where both things exist. You know, I love God and I do these things, but I also give myself a pass to make bad choices. Uh, and not that sex is a bad choice, but the way that they went around about that was was at least a bad choice for somebody. Um, let me just wrap it up with this. I don't ever remember in those moments when things came to light, when things fell apart for these particular people that I'm thinking of, then or even later, I never remember a moment where there was an actual sort of atonement or accountability or or, or even, I almost felt like I deserved some sort of apology and it wasn't even me that was really involved, but I felt like you have presented yourself in a certain way as a model for righteousness and for living holy and what it means to be appropriately pious or devout. And you essentially are no different than anyone else who hasn't made any of those commitments. And in some cases, you're worse because you are pretending. So you're a poser. 
but you don't offer any contrition or any atonement or any sacrifice of saying, you know what, I'm going to give this up, which is all counterintuitive to the whole idea of your Christian experience in the first place, which is to, if you make a mistake, have a contrite heart, a con, you know, broken spirit and contrite heart and all that kind of stuff. And to, to make sacrifices, to be accountable for yourself. These are things that should be in line with what, what you represent. And yet you, you essentially conduct yourself in a way that's contrary to that. Well, I think it's important now to make a distinction between, yeah, going buck wild and sowing your wild oats and taking advantage of power dynamics and abuse. And so I think that's really important to um, to highlight. Now, on that level, holding people accountable requires the community to say, yeah, we don't do that, get out type of thing. They won't do that. Because ultimately, from my experience, um, people reflect who they are and what they know. Whoever you are, when you open the Bible, that's what you're going to pick up. It's just going to, whatever is you is going to stick to you from that text. And so if you're about loving people and like people having what they need and sharing, you're going to read about, you know, the time of Jubilee and do backflips and you're going to preach about it. And you're going to say, wow, Bernie Sanders sounds, that sounds like Jubilee. I love it. But if you're different if you grew up in a conservative place or if you, you know, think those other things, you're just going to skirt right over that. It's not even going to register because you don't see it because it's not you. And we're we're kind of conditioned to see the things that we recognize and to filter everything to kind of, I mean, our brain does it to help us make sense of it. It's like you don't really see reality. You see what your brain tells you is reality. It's filtered. Um, in that way. I know that probably sounds really existential and scary, but it's true. Um, <laughs> but it's in terms of accountability, one on the individual level, again, because no one has these conversations, it's hard for people to understand accountability for their actions because they just found out that they can do this thing and there's no emotional maturity or intelligence around their actions. Because again, people around them don't have it either, <laughs> right? Um, and on that level, that's where the challenge is but you can't really have those conversations if you can't talk about that stuff in public and in the open. When it comes to institutionally, the problem is ultimately, well, one, I got to put this caveat out there. A lot of scholars wrestle with the term black church for the very reason that you mentioned, because there are black Episcopalians, there's black Catholics. Um, I like to say black, historically black church institutions, like when I was doing my writing and research, because what they mean are the distinct denominations that were formed by Blacks or Blacks here in the United States. It's a very distinct thing. And that is true, at least in my mind, that, that's imperfect too. But when you say Black church and just mean that, it's like, yeah, there's a Black church and then there's a church for Black people in it, but then who gets to decide which one is which? And I just feel like at some point it's like, well, there's a UMC church with a historically Black congregation. Do they not count because they're not AME, they're UMC? You know what I mean? Do they not count? Um, so it's, like I said, there, there really isn't a perfect word, but I like to use um, Black church institutions to say that the note that, okay, one, it's not just one, and two, that they all have their differences and nuances. And we, when we say that, we mean a very particular distinct thing. But in terms of holding these people accountable, I think if I could just even focus on, you know, Black churches for a second, we are still held in the grip of misogyny. Um, I think that so many things stem from misogyny. Homophobia stems from misogyny. Abuse stems from misogyny. All of these things. And the, the Bible doesn't explicitly do too much to help with that. I mean, there's something, if you look, 
but it's not blatantly obvious and it's not in the fun parts of the Bible either. Right. Um, so what needs to happen is for people to cultural stuff mixed up in that too. But that means we have to actually talk about it. It means we need to actually reconsider our, our, our ideas about fast tail girls or things of that nature. Um, we need to think about rethink men and how this idea that men just basically are, if you if you show a man a thigh, he's just going to be uncontrollable and, and basically it's your fault that he did whatever he did. They have to start at some point not allowing someone's gift to be the reason why they stick around. And they, I mean, there's just so many cultural things that have to happen within the larger Black community, period, but specifically in the Black and Black churches, that there's just a lot of work that needs to be done that, frankly, I think this is the part that's disappointing to people. The Black church is really not that, that progressive. Once again, that was my co-host Verdell and myself from our second series in the Conversation episodes. Join us next week as we conclude this conversation and the first full season of Where We're Headed. You don't want to miss it. Take care. And he did it just for me. At the end of the day, he considered us favorable. Right, and we came to bless them tonight. I don't know how y'all feel tonight, but who came to give y'all praise?